And I would invite you this morning to take your Bibles and to turn again to the book of Hosea. We'll be in Hosea chapters 4 through 7 as we do an overview. Boy, I was thinking about this sermon a lot. Now, I look ahead on the calendar, and I knew that today was Mother's Day, and I was thinking about the fact that the way that it all played out, we were going to be here in the book of Hosea, and I almost changed my sermon. In fact, I wrestled with it quite a bit. I went back and forth. Maybe we can skip and do Hosea next week, and we can do the traditional Mother's Day sermon. And as I was wrestling with that, I thought of four women... Two I've never met, two I know very well. And all four of those women and their reputations helped me make my decision for today. The two I've never met are two women that are spoken of highly in the Bible. Their names are Lois and Eunice. And you find their names in 2 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 5. Lois was Timothy's grandmother. Eunice was his mother. They were the ones who instilled faith in Timothy. In fact, we find in Acts 16 when Timothy is first measured or mentioned that that it's his, uh, it just says his father was a Greek. So we can kind of infer from that that maybe his father was not yet a Christ follower. But Lois and Eunice instilled faith. Paul says that, in fact, in 2 Timothy, he said they taught them the scriptures. And in chapter 3 and verse 15, Paul reminds them that he has known the scriptures since infancy. These two women taught their son the scriptures. They, They poured scripture into his life. And you've got to remember that the scripture they had available to them for instilling faith into young Timothy was what we call the Old Testament. Then I thought of two women I know very well, Jesse and Dorothy. Jesse was my granny, and Dorothy, the oldest of her 11 children, was my mom. These two women were instrumental in my own faith development. Oh, I know, as human moms, they they had their faults. I mean, as humans, we all have our faults. But I can remember, I can remember being at my Granny Barry's house in Bluefield, West Virginia, halfway up East River Mountain. And the house that I am most drawn to is the first one that I remember. It literally had been an orphanage that they had purchased And with 11 kids, you need an orphanage. Uh, It was a huge house. Walnut floors on all three levels. 12-foot ceilings on the first and second level, and the attic had 8-foot ceilings. Wraparound porch in the front. Oh, it was great. And I remember as a kid coming downstairs, and there would be my granny sitting at the end of her long table in her big kitchen uh, next to the stove, reading her Bible, reading her devotional. 
Granny was the last one to get dressed. They only had two bathrooms in this orphanage house, and so she would wait till everybody else was ready. Then she would get ready, and she would fix breakfast for anyone. She was an example of faith. My mom, my mom had memorized lots of scripture, King James, of course, and she could recite it at any time. My mom had scripture on her mind at at any time. As a pastor's wife, I watched her go through ups and downs of ministry. I thought of these two women, and in my heart, I knew that they would not want me to veer from the sermon I had prepared for today, even though it's not your usual uh, user-friendly Mother's Day sermon. And believe me when I tell you, I do not want to darken the gates of heaven and have my granny and my mom waiting for me to scold me for not doing what God had put in my heart. So this morning, we are going to continue our series in Hosea. This is a tough section. As your bulletin sermon title says, we're going to look at God as a prosecuting attorney making his case against his people. Now, God as a prosecuting attorney is not necessarily looking for a conviction But he's looking for the people to see and understand the charges that he's bringing against them because his desire is not just to get a conviction and put them away. His desire is that they would see the charges, that they would understand the charges, and then that they would say, oh, we need to turn around. We need to go the right way. We always have to remember that while God in his word does, never, does not hold back in dealing with sin, God's heart is for people to turn to him, to repent of their sin, to change. This morning I'm going to survey these chapters and we're going to look at three general charges God has against his people as outlined by the prophet Hosea. And then when we're done with that, we'll look at God's call for change. Now, there is a note of explanation I need to give you. And if you've been reading through Hosea and reading through the minor prophets, or if even if you read through the Psalms, sometimes you see a, a mention of the name Ephraim. And you say, wait a minute, I thought he was talking to Israel. Who's, what's Ephraim have to do with this? Well, Ephraim and Manasseh were Joseph's sons. And at the end of the book of Genesis, when uh, Jacob is blessing the sons, he blesses Ephraim and Manasseh. And we don't have a tribe of Joseph. We have the half-tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh. By the time we get to Hosea, uh, the nation had divided. That happens early in uh, 2 Kings. And uh, Rehoboam is the son of Solomon. He becomes the king. And he goes to Solomon's wise advisors and he says, 
how should I rule this people? And they said, you know what? Your father has been really hard on the people. If you ease up on them and lower their taxes and all, they're going to follow you forever. Then he goes to his friends, the young bucks. And they said, no way. You say, my father was this hard. I'm going to be tougher. You think you've had it hard. It's going to be worse. And he listens to his friends. And 10 of the 12 tribes say, that's it. We're out of here. And they go to the north, and those ten become Israel. As time goes on, the largest populated group in Israel are the tribe Ephraim. So sometimes when the prophet interchanges Israel with Ephraim, he's wanting the hearers or the listeners to know that he's talking specifically about that northern kingdom. So that's kind of our our program note today. So we're here in chapter 4. And the first charge that kind of begins in chapter 4 of Hosea is simply this. Spiritual deterioration affects everything. What happened when that group of ten went north is they stopped thinking about going to Jerusalem to the temple to worship. And so they set up two places of worship. And at those both of those places of worship, they set up a golden calf and they said this is where we will worship from now on. And see when a person or a group of people remove God from the equation of their lives, then they're left with two choices. Choice 1 is to create a being to worship that they can manage. Or they simply choice 2 determine that they, individually, are the being that they worship. Either way, the Bible calls that idolatry. And and Hosea outlines God's first charge right here in just the first two verses of chapter 4. Listen to this. Hear the word of the Lord, you Israelites, because the Lord has a charge to bring against you who live in the land. There is no faithfulness, no love, No acknowledgement of God in the land. There is only cursing and lying and murder, stealing and adultery. They break all bounds and bloodshed follows bloodshed. God's first charge is very simple. Hosea says there's no faithfulness. Their actions in going after the false gods that were set up in Samaria and further north or also, so many of them had been to go after Baal worship, their their actions have shown that they were being unfaithful to God. And so how can God continue to be faithful to them if they are unfaithful to Him? We all know the heartache that comes when someone has broken our trust. When we have entrusted someone, maybe it's with uh, a part of uh, us that we just wanted to share with them and they go and they, they blab it to somebody else or, or maybe we entrust someone with a duty and they fail to carry through and, and you're, you're careful about, will I trust that person again? And in a sense, God, by saying there's no faithfulness, says, you've broken the trust I had with you. You've broken faithfulness with me. But then he says there's no love. More More accurately, you could translate that, no covenant love. 
You see, God, it's, it's recorded in the book of Jeremiah, but God reminds the people that he loves them with an everlasting love. You read the Psalms and sometimes you read the word, your loving kindness. That's that covenant love. And God says, I have that covenant love for you that's, that's always there. And yet, that covenant love that I give to you, Israel, I want you to return that love to me. And God tells his people when that love is not reciprocated, when there's no loving commitment to God in return, then God has to take action. And thirdly, he says there's no acknowledgement of God. There's no understanding of God. No willingness to get to know God. That reflects kind of a no real interest in God. We kind of saw it last week that there was this pluralism. There's Baal and the Ashtoreth and all, and there's Yahweh, and, and there's the golden calves. And, some, and we'll just put them all on the mantle, and we'll all be the same. It's all the same God. And God says, no, there's, you got to know me. you gotta, you got to get to know me because I know you. Think about your best friend for a moment. That person is your friend because the two of you have taken the time to get to know each other. You like to be together. You like to do stuff together. You like to share about your lives together. You, you listen to each other. You're there for your friend when they're in need and they're there for you. But think about those friendships that maybe you've had where it felt like you were doing all the relationship work. You were reaching out and saying, hey, let's get together. They weren't reciprocating. You were spending time, but they, they would, yeah, if it was convenient for them. And, and eventually when you, you kind of stepped back, you realized you were doing all the relationship work, but your friend never really acknowledged you. That's what Israel was doing to God. They weren't acknowledging him. And it's interesting because that, that charge says, here's the result. When there's no faithfulness, when there's no love, when there's no acknowledgement of God, then what happens is those core tenets of what it means to follow God are completely ignored. And Hosea lists just several of the Ten Commandments. There's only cursing, lying, murder, stealing, and adultery. By listing just five of those commandments in, in classic Old Testament fashion, fashion, he's referring to all ten. He's saying the result that you don't have any faithfulness or love or acknowledgement of God is leading you away from what God, the, the basic tenets that God requires to have relationship with him and relationship with others. You think about it, the Ten Commandments as stated in Exodus 20 are first give us principles of living in relationship with God. Commandments 1 through 4 are all about our relationship with God. No images, do not take the Lord's name in vain, remember the Sabbath, worship the God, worship all of that, that's our relationship to God. Commandments 5 through 10 are about our relationships with one another. And when God is not the focus, people live selfishly and take advantage of one another. And that's what was happening 
in Israel. That's what Hosea is speaking out against. Now, I would say this. For those of us here, now that we live in what I call a New Testament, we're on this side of the cross, we actually have another gauge. I think the Ten Commandments are very important. I think you ought to know them. I think you ought to understand how they apply to your life. But we also have that internal reality. The Apostle Paul calls it the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those nine characteristics ought to be growing and developing in your life and in my life on a regular basis. How are we doing? God's people in Israel weren't doing so well. For them, the very existence in the land that God had given them depended on their obedience to God and His laws. And so that's why you're going to find references like in verse 3. Because of this, the land dries up and all who live in it waste away. The beasts of the field, the birds in the sky, and the fish in the sea are swept away. God says, because you're not being obedient, this land that I promised you, this land that back in uh, Exodus was called a land of milk and honey, it was going to be enough to provide for you, it was going to be so perfect for you, This, this land is drying up. Now, we're not told here how it will dry up, whether that's through natural means or through military means, but God says the land is going to be taken away from you. And the land was one of the core promises that God made through Abraham. Not only does spiritual deterioration affect everything, the second charge comes to the leaders. God expects leaders to be people of integrity. Throughout the bulk of chapter 4 and on into chapter 5, God is going to be speaking through Hosea about the leaders. This is the most lengthy charge in the charges against God's people. We need to realize that first and foremost, the leaders that that Hosea is talking about were the priests, but then it also went to those who were of the royal line, so it would be the religious and the political leaders would be one way you could say it. Just a few minutes ago, you remember we taught, I just mentioned briefly about Lois and Eunice, who were spiritual leaders in Timothy's life, or my granny and my mom, who were spiritual leaders in my life. And so I think we ought to remember here that because it's real easy, we say, well, hey, hey, I'm off the hook. I'm not a priest. If you are in any way involved in somebody's life where they look to you for spiritual guidance, then God expects you to be a, a spiritual leader of integrity. The elements are found in verses 4 and 5, but let me begin with another translation of Hosea 4.4 that helps us understand where he's going. In Hosea 4.4, the prophet says, Yet let no one contend and let no one accuse, for with you is my contention, O priests. I am bringing a contention against you, priests. The priests were designed by God, all the way back to Aaron. The priests were designed by God to be his agents with the responsibility of representing God to the people and representing the people to God. They were the intermediary. 
They were to lead the people in worship to God. They were to guide the people in their sacrifices. But they had failed in every way imaginable. Verse 6, he says, My people are destroyed uh, from lack of knowledge. They had failed to teach the people God's law, and so the people can't acknowledge God because they don't know who He is because the priests aren't teaching it. In fact, they had led the way of ignoring the law. Because you have rejected knowledge, I also reject you as the priest. You're, you've rejected the knowledge of the law, God says. And God says, this is going to negatively affect everyone. I will also ignore your children. See, and I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen in my years of ministry. You know, wherever, whatever bar parents set for their children spiritually, they will reach that bar. Now, if that's a low bar... Okay, we're going to go to church on Sunday morning, and then the rest of the week you figure out what you want to do. When the children become adults, they will go to church twice a month. And when their children come along, maybe they don't go. And it's not just about going to church. Going to, that's just an illustration. Whatever bar we set, our kids will reach it, and as we lower the bar, they'll, just, they'll, they'll go whichever way we go. We set the tone as parents. And, the pre, and God says, this is going to negatively affect your children. But it, it, it's even worse than that. The more the priests there were, the more they sinned against me, verse 7. They exchanged their glorious, glorious God for something disgraceful. The priests who were supposed to lead people to God were actually being involved in man-made religion. They were leading the people away from God. Verse 8, they feed on the sins of my people and relish in their wickedness. In other words, they were actually enjoying any of the benefits that came from leading people away from God. The priests could find themselves getting wealthy by demanding things of people that weren't of God. And verse 9 like people, like priests. In other words, one could not tell by their behavior the difference between the priests and the people. They were all living in sin and thus being unfaithful to God. Now, Hosea is not done. He continues to build that case. And in chapter 5, he adds the political leaders to the mix. Together with the religious leaders, they have led the nation to a place which, invent, which was going to bring about impending invasion. Now, in the nation of Israel, God had a requirement of the king. You'll find it tucked away in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, I think, 17. But all the way back then, when Moses is giving his final speech to the nation, he tells them, yeah, I know, the time's coming, you're going to want a king. And when you get a king, that king is to write the law in his own hand. 
Because the idea was the king now as a political leader was still a representative of God for the people. And now as that leader, he should have shown the people the way to God. Verse 8, we'll pick it up here in chapter 5 and verse 8. Sound the trumpet in Gibeah, the horn in Ramah. Raise the battle cry in Beth-Avon. Lead on, Benjamin. Ephraim talked about that, will be laid waste on the day of reckoning among the tribes of Israel. I proclaim what is certain. Hosea says it's going to happen. And we have these locations mentioned that we really don't know where they are. The, the idea of Gibeah and Ramah and all, what we, nobody really knows exactly what that means except that it's, it's this indication of the whole nation. We would say from sea to shining sea. You know, when you say that, that means the whole nation. It's that kind of an idea. It's that kind of a metaphor. And, and, and he goes on and he talks about that they're going to be a, a snare. And let me pick it up here. Uh, verse 9. Ephraim will be laid waste on the day of reckoning among the tribes of Israel. As I proclaim what is certain. Judah's leaders are like those who move boundary stones. I will pour out my wrath on them like a flood of water. Ephraim is oppressed, trampled in judgment, intent on pursuing idols. I am like a moth to Ephraim, like rot to the people of Judah. Earlier on in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, You've been a snare at Mizpah, a net spread out on Tabor. All of these metaphors are the idea that you're going to, you're going to be trapped. You're going to be running about, not knowing what you're doing. He talks about you're like a dove flitting back and forth. There was so much going on and, and, and people were trying to do so much to gain their own political power that they were totally missing anything to do with God. And Hosea repeatedly sees the nation moving further and further and further away from God and then seeking any solution but God. And it was the religious and the political leaders setting the tone. The end result, and we can see it through history, was the moral failure of the nation. Now, we can look at all of this and we can start trying to draw parallels to our nation or any Western nation or any human nation. And yeah, there are some things we have to be careful about there. You see, God established Israel as a theocracy never a democracy. And that being said, it's easy to talk about how bad our country is or how bad another country is. Or we could go more spiritual and talk about the state of the church and point things about attitudes and church leaders that have fallen. And it's easy to look at those other churches and what they're doing. But I think the application needs to come a lot closer to home. I think we need to look at what was happening here and let it be a mirror to ourselves. I need to make sure that if I claim that I follow Jesus, that I make sure I'm truly following Jesus first. I have two commands. You have two commands. Jesus gave them to us. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And it needs to be in that order. When I am fully committed to personally loving God, 
when I am fully committed to being faithful to God, when I am fully committed to getting to know, to acknowledge God, that's going to change my mindset. And I can look at how bad our world is getting, and it is getting that way, and I can look at all the things that are happening wherever, in Springfield or Wheaton or Washington, D.C., and go, oh, what's going on? What's going on? I can look at all of that, but I believe My answer is not in any political party or political movement. My answer is always in the person of Jesus Christ. And so when I love God with my heart, soul, and strength, then I love my neighbor as myself. And so I should not ever see my neighbor as an enemy to be defeated or a political foe to be vanquished. But that's still somebody for whom Jesus died. When my spiritual life, just as spiritual deterioration affects everything, when my spiritual life is focused on God, it also changes everything. See, when those of us in leadership positions, and by the way, if you're a mom or a dad, you're in a leadership position. If you're an older brother or sister, you're in a leadership position. If you're a supervisor at work, you're in a leadership position. If you're an upperclassman at school, you're in a leadership position. Any of us in leadership positions need to live in a manner that despite our flaws, and we all have them, we do our best in the dependency upon the Holy Spirit to fulfill God's responsibility for our lives And that means loving God with all our heart, soul, and strength and loving our neighbor as ourselves. And by doing that and by focusing on him, even just by example, we begin to point other people and lead them to what it means to follow God. That was not the case in Israel in 733 B.C. In the last chapter, chapter 7, God gives us one more charge. God calls us to engage culture instead of fully embracing it. You see, to engage culture means I understand the culture where I live. I'm familiar with it. I'm able to live there. I'm able to thrive there. However, to embrace culture means that I become so fully immersed that one could not tell there was a difference between my life and the drift of culture. Several years ago, I happened to be talking to an individual who led a department in a company. And as we conversed, they learned who I was, and they learned what I did, and they learned what church I pastored. And then they asked me one of those questions that always makes me wince. Oh, um, do you know so-and-so? I think they go to your church. Yes, I know them. I never know what's coming next. But what came next was, they are a great employee. We are so glad they're in our department. They are so refreshing. This person, they said, you know, there's, all, there's always office gossip going on, but it's clear to those of us in leadership, this person doesn't get caught up in that. They, they just kind of stay away from that. 
They're, they're so positive every day. They come in with a smile. They come in and they, they do their job well. And they do their job effectively. They're competent in their job. They're such an asset to our company and to our department. You see, that's somebody who is able to engage in workplace culture, but not fully embrace it, and it made a difference. Not the case with Israel. In in fact, we could summarize what was going on with Israel in chapter 7, verses 8 through 11. Listen to this. Ephraim mixes with the nations. Ephraim is a flat loaf, not turned over. Foreigners sap his strength, but he does not realize it. His hair is sprinkled with gray, but he does not notice. Israel's arrogance testifies against him, but despite all he does, not return to the Lord his God or search for him. Some metaphors here. The term mixing is a term that was used when someone would bring a flour or a grain offering and an oil offering, and the oil and the flour were mixed and stirred until everything was saturated with that oil. Ephraim has become so mixed with the nations that they had so engaged or embraced the nations, you couldn't tell the difference. Uh, they're called a a flat loaf of of bread that's not turned over. In other words, as a nation, they're like a a half-baked loaf of bread. A half-baked loaf of bread may look good on the outside, but it's just nothing but mush on the inside. It hasn't fully risen and gotten what it needs. So they're basically useless as a nation to God. By aligning themselves with other nations, and at this point, especially Assyria, they are finding that they're slowly losing everything. But it's so subtle, it's not noticed. They sap their strength out of them, but then this other word picture, his hair is sprinkled with gray, and he doesn't notice. So his energy is being sapped away, he doesn't realize it. His hair is sprinkled with gray, but he he doesn't notice. Some of us have walked that path or are walking that path, right? And and you look in the mirror and you're going, oh, it's not so bad. And then you go see your adult children, namely me, like, whoa, dad, you're starting to get gray, you know? And and okay, no, it's not that bad. Maybe I'll get that Grecian formula stuff. It's not that bad. You know, what happened to you? So Israel's thinking of nation. They don't need God. We're doing fine. And remember when we started this, militarily and economically, they were doing good. We don't need God. Everything's working well. But when we neglect God in an effort to become more culturally accepted and loved, we begin to drift from God, and we don't always notice it. And look at this last word picture here. Uh, Ephraim is, verse 11, Ephraim is like a dove, easily deceived and senseless, now calling to Egypt, now turning to Assyria. When they go, I will throw my net over them. I will pull them down like birds in the sky. When I hear them flocking together, I will catch them. That, that word picture, that dove, I mentioned it earlier, so easily deceived, kind of senseless, darting from place to place, looking for shelter. And Israel's like that. They were darting to Egypt. Egypt will take care of us, darting to Assyria. Assyria will take care of us. And God had told them repeatedly, trust me. Think about who you're trusting. 
Think about where you're running. When, when, when stuff starts to get hard, what is your first response? God warns them in each chapter that all of their self-determination and drifting from Him will have disastrous consequences. We know from history, eventually, the northern nation of Israel was completely destroyed. The people were scattered. But what is God's heart here? I have purposely skipped over chapter 6. Because chapter 6 kind of is a pause and we get God's heart. And here's God's heart. It's simply this. God longs for relationship with us. In chapter 6, verses 1 through 3, we're not sure whether this is the prophet speaking or whether this is God speaking. But we read this. Come, let us return to the Lord. He has torn us to pieces, but he will heal us. He has injured us, but he will bind up our wounds. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will restore us, that we may live in his presence. Let us acknowledge the Lord. Let us press on to acknowledge him. As surely as the sun rises, he will appear. He will come to us like the winter rains, like the spring rains that water the earth. Straying from God is painful and costly, not immediately, but in the long run. But when we come back to him, he heals us, he restores us, he refreshes us. It's so important for us to realize today, in the midst of all of this prosecuting attorney, in the midst of all these charges, we need to realize that while God is a God who takes sin seriously, he's also a God that longs to restore us. Ezekiel 33:11 is a very powerful verse. God says this, "As surely as I live," declares the sovereign Lord, "I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they would turn from their ways and live." You know, when someone who's evil and vile, is their, their life ends on this earth, God's not up there applauding. His heart is broken because there's no longer an opportunity for that person to repent and come to him. It breaks his heart. He takes no delight in that. We, we find a similar thing in the end of 2 Peter chapter 3. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. That's God's heart. God's heart wasn't to wipe out his nation. That's not what he wanted to do. It's what happened because the people wouldn't return to him. His heart was return to me. You see, when you or I have sinned, no matter what the sin is, when we confess our sin to God, he says, I am faithful to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Oh, you may have consequences that you'll live with. But in the arms of our Heavenly Father, as we saw all the way back in Hosea 2.15, only God can take the valley of 
Achor, the valley of trouble, and turn it into a door of hope. You see, God is concerned with your heart, with my heart. The people were going through religious exercises, and God says, I am more concerned with your heart than I am religious exercises. In fact, he says that in Hosea 6.6. For I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. In fact, that, pat, that, that verse is in your bulletin on the side panel. I, I quoted, I put in there from Matthew, where Jesus said that to the Pharisees who were involved in all kinds of ritual, but had no mercy, had no sense of the, 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 the brokenness of humanity. You see, if you have religious exercise that just looks good, that even it can be impressive, but if there's not accompanying heart change, then it's empty. The word mercy here, I don't even think is the best translation. I think it's that word loving kindness. The God who shows us loving kindness because of his promises to us desires that we return that loving kindness. When we do that, we allow God to change our hearts. When we do that, we follow his ways. When we do that, we care for those around us. When we do that, we know that we are the people who love God and love our neighbors, and that's what God wants. He doesn't want people who just do religious stuff. He wants people that care about the hurting person next door. What do we do with all this? And we've just scratched the surface of a very lengthy legal brief that God brings against his people, but how do we go live it? I want to leave you with just some brief takeaway points. And here's the first one. Kind of comes back to what we said earlier. Don't be thinking about who needed to hear this today. Don't look around and go, oh, boy, I wish they were here today. They needed this. Let this be a mirror to your soul. Does God have your complete commitment and devotion Where are you sensing that God wants you to change? And what's the first step? Secondly, what kind of example are you and I being for others? What kind of an example are we being to our family? A lot of family celebrations today. It's Mother's Day. Well, what example are we being to our coworkers? What about our neighbors? How do I project onto the prevailing culture? Do I project loving engagement like Jesus did, who actually sat and ate with sinners and pagans and tax collectors? There are always people in our world who fundamentally disagree with us, probably on every issue you can imagine. Does the person who fundamentally disagrees with me still find that I'm a safe person who loves them anyway. Thirdly, what's moving you right now? What's what's your passion? What's driving your thinking processes? Does the way that I express myself and whatever moves me and whatever I'm driven by, does it make 
And does the way I express it make the gospel of Jesus attractive to others? Sometimes I can be so passionate about a topic or an issue or something, I can be so into it that I actually push people away from me and away from God. Finally, when you become aware, when I become aware of a flaw or an error in our thinking, when we become aware of a way that we may have been more repulsive for Christ instead of attractive to Christ or attracting people to Christ, stop. Admit your error. Confess to God and maybe to others about your error. Ask God to help you make clear, simple steps back toward Him and toward God-centered change. It's always about you and me moving toward God and bringing others with us. It is Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day. And I'm convinced, knowing my own mom, knowing my granny, that beyond the shadow of a doubt, a godly mom wants to see her children following Jesus. And she wants that even more than the largest bouquet of flowers or the messiest breakfast in bed. She wants to see her children following Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you, Father, for just opening our eyes, for challenging us. Lord, there's a lot here. There's a lot to think about. I pray that this next week would be a week in which we truly do absorb your word, absorb it into our hearts and make the changes you want us to make so that we can be the people who draw others to you. In Jesus' name, amen.